0: Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, editor-at-large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're delighted to have author Daniel Jose Older in the studio. Daniel is the New York Times best-selling author of Shadow Shaper, an urban fantasy that follows the adventures of Sierra Santiago, a teenager who lives in Brooklyn and has supernatural powers. As you'll learn in the episode, Daniel is also a musician, an artist, and a former paramedic. We'll talk with him about his latest book, Shadow House Fall, and about his efforts to bring more diversity to children's literature. Welcome to the program, Daniel. I have admired you from afar for a very long time, so this is a special treat.
1: Ah, Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Could you tell our listeners about your newest book, Shadow House Fall, and how it picks up from the best-selling Shadow Shaper?
1: Sure. So Shadow House Fall finds Sierra basically poised to have lots of new adventures. She's really coming into her power, and now her whole crew, including her mom, are all initiated as Shadow Shapers. So... It's about how do they deal with this kind of magic? What does that mean in the world that they live in, both in the magical realm, because that's also expanded in this book, and in the world of Brooklyn today. And what does that mean dealing with life, going to school, everyday life, her family, the police, all these different layers of, of power and conversations that are happening in the streets of Brooklyn are all integrated with the magic system.
0: For our listeners who may not know, you tell us what is a shadow shaper?
1: Sure. So shadow shaping is a kind of magic uh, basically where you can become the conduit between a work of art and a spirit. So you basically bring the art to life by channeling the spirit into it. So usually what Sierra usually uses are are murals because she's a painter. So she'll paint a beautiful picture on the wall and then, you know, maybe a bad guy will be attacking or something. So she'll have to bring it to life to help defend her. So she'll slap it with one hand and hold the other hand up while a ghost will actually enter, go through her body and into the art. And then the art comes to life.
0: Is that all? (laughs) It's it's pretty simple, really. Very self-explanatory. Where did you get that idea?
1: (laughs) You know, a lot of this book, um, a lot of this whole series is really about the power of art and the way that art can kind of save our life. Um, So it, it was about thinking about what does that mean? But with fantasy, you know, we bring metaphors to life. We really try to physicalize them. So it was really about thinking through, like, how can we tell a story that's exciting and adventurous and also about this idea that art will swoop in You know in our really most difficult hours and be there for us and it's also about thinking about spirit in that way too I think we we tend to have a very negative view in particularly I think in in Western literature of the ghost and what that what that means usually they're jumping out of closets and eating people's brains but the rest of the world and for the rest of most of history people have had a much more complex and often beautiful relationship with our ancestors so this was really about a reclamation of the ghost story and trying to reconfigure ancestors and think about them in a way where they've lifted us up and supported us instead of just trying to kill us.
0: I love that so much on so many levels. Thank you. <laughs> Could you tell us a little more about the character of Sierra? What she's like and what you most admire about her?
1: Mm. Sierra, she—I would say that she showed up in my imagination almost fully formed. She's tenacious. She's hilarious you know she really wants what she wants and she's also really just fed up with people either lying to her especially adults either lying to her or not telling her the whole truth um, or not telling her what she needs to know and she's adamant about that a lot of this book is about the mistake of not telling the young people everything that they need to know again and again that comes up so for sierra She's also just a regular girl that wants to just have a great summer and be with her friends and draw pictures and paint murals. And that's really the core of who she is. But she's thrust into this very difficult tragic situation where she has to fight for her life and defend her whole community basically from different outsiders that are trying to come in and destroy it and it's a lot about this complexity of what does it mean to have power right once she gets to a place where she's kind of this master magician in a way you know now she has to deal with that now she has the responsibility of having this secret power that a lot of people don't really understand and even the other shadow shapers don't really know what it's like to be her so she's kind of being in and out of her own community and that level too and there's a sadness there that she's working through but ultimately she's an artist and that's the part of her or the part of myself that i really gave to her because when i was a kid i just loved to draw on everything and that was how i would think through stuff i would just draw pictures and draw pictures until it made sense
0: So it seems that in a community where people may often feel powerless, that art is one real way, very real way, to feel a certain power.
1: Definitely. And I think you see that very clearly in something like a memorial mural, right? That's something that the community puts up. It's done for people who aren't going to have PBS specials about them and New York Times obituaries, and people that, if they're even mentioned at all, are often mentioned disparagingly, even in death. So it's a form of reclamation, too, to say, you know, this person was a human who was loved. And maybe they did things that weren't, you know, according to the norm, and maybe they were complex and problematic and all this other stuff, but they also loved, you know, this type of car and this type of liquor and their family and their toys and this and that. And, like, that's the humanity of the person coming through in the space of art, you know. So it might not be art saving a life, but it's art commemorating a life.
0: I see. We'd love for you to read the opening passage of Shadow House Fall to set the scene for our listeners.
1: Shadow House Fall, Chapter 1. Sierra Santiago closed her eyes and the whole spinning world opened up around her. A brisk wind whispered songs of the coming winter as it shushed through browning leaves and then whisked along the moonlit field, throwing Sierra's mass of curls into disarray. Up above, the first round of overnight flights leaving JFK cut trails across the cloudless sky. Traffic whirred along just outside the park walls, and beyond that the shuttle train sighed and screeched to a halt. Doors slid open. wary passengers collected their personal belongings as instructed, adjusted their earbuds, and headed off into the night. But that was the simple stuff. Sierra had learned to expand her senses out farther than any normal person. It wasn't easy, but when she quieted her mind and the spirits were close, she could hear the city's clicks and groans halfway across Brooklyn. Tonight wasn't about meditation or the ongoing urban symphony, though. Where were her spirits? As if in response, a vision sizzled into view in her mind's eye. There in the forest, not too far from her, a figure crouched. She could make out the silhouette leaning against a fallen tree, see the person's fast-beating heart telegraph frantic pulses out into the chilly night. The person scratched something onto the tree and looked around for nearby spirits. I see you. Sierra thought, tensing her face into a smug smile. Whoever you are, now, who else is out there? She let the image go, and immediately another appeared. In the field, she sat at the edge of. A figure lay face down in the grass, breathing heavily. After a few seconds, the person hunched up on their elbows and peered into the darkness. Okay, Sierra nodded. Got it. What else? It's
0: beautiful. Thank so you. beautiful, Daniel. I don't know how you weave that layer of fantasy through the work the very real urban setting of brooklyn
1: a lot of it is about balancing the fantastical aspects with the very real world aspects of it and i think sometimes we misinterpret that to mean like it has to be extra gritty and you know grim and you know kids shooting each other and all kinds of violence and like that is, a, that is a truth that needs to be addressed, but that can't be the only truth of the stories that we tell about the city, right? The city is full of love and disaster. It's, it's a magical place and it's a desperate place. It's a place where people die, you know, for all the wrong reasons, way too young. And a lot of that is because of state violence and, and violence that we commit against each other. So there's so many layers of complexity. And I think, you know, to say that we have to hone in on the the reality of the situation to balance out the fantasy doesn't just mean the, the bad stuff. It means that we have to find the balance of the city, get into those parts of, just like with when we talk about ancestors and the dead and how they've held us up and got us to where we're going, our communities also do that. And so this was so much about painting of Brooklyn that was about community and about the people of Brooklyn, how we love each other and hold each other up in all these different ways through all kinds of different crises. And that I felt like that's the core of the book. And then from there, it, there's a lot of room to expand into these magical realms. So in book one, it was really about shadow shaping itself and what that magic is and in book two we open it up and there's this thing called the deck of worlds that's a whole new power that's come into play and that's also a very old and ancient kind of power that is in effect kind of counterbalancing some of the shadow shaping magic.
0: I see and speaking of love there is a great deal about friendship mm-hmm, in this book. Definitely. What do you hope that your teen readers will take away about friendship? What insights do you hope they'll gain?
1: Mm. You know, friendship is really important, especially because of what I said about community, right? I mean, community is built on friendship and family and all these different interrelationships that people have. What I love about the crew, um, the Shadow Shapers, is that you know, everything they do comes out of love from each other, right, for each other. So they'll raz each other constantly, and there's a lot of back and forth where they're just making fun of each other. But it's always with a lot of love, and there's never a lack of that. It's no, no, one's, no one's feelings are ever truly hurt, but people are getting burnt constantly. And that's great. You know, that's how they express love. And I think there's a real beauty to that and a power to that, in part because it's true. That is a lot of how we show love. And so they're doing that. And, you know, at the same time, they always know who the real enemy is. And so they can still present a united front, even though they have disagreements and entanglements amidst that. So a lot of it is about, like, yeah, like, they, you know, friendship isn't a perfect circle. It's not something that just everything just lines up and everything is great. You know, there's trials and tribulations and there's moments where you feel like people were dishonest or maybe they were or what have you, but they, they fight to work it out and to get where they need to get because what they, all they have is each other, really.
0: Oh, you no doubt have some pretty incredible stories from your time as a New York City paramedic. How do those experiences influence your fiction?
1: Oh, definitely. Uh, just living on that everyday balance between life and death is a lot about uh, why I write ghost stories and then and, and just living in the city and working in the city. When you're a paramedic, you see parts of New York City that nobody else sees. And you see a whole swath of it, you know, from the actual gutters, you know, to the bottom of the trains tracks down in the tunnels to the highest high rises, whether it be, they be project buildings or, you know, fancy million dollar lofts. You're on every level of society. And then on top of that, you're up inside all these different offices of bureaucracy, whether it's hospitals or prisons or government buildings. So you have this fascinating kind of like cross section of the world that we live in. And you see both power at play and the depths of people's crises. Um, You really are called upon to show up in most people's worst moments, sometimes their last moment. And then you get to see how they act and what they do. And on top of that, you're not just there to show up and see stuff. You're a part of it, right? I think as writers, we can sometimes buy into this mythology that we're standing outside of something and just taking notes on it but the truth is we're always a part of things no matter what we do even by taking notes we're playing some part you know whether we recognize it or not so being a paramedic you're robbed of the ability to think that you're outside of anything because your actual job is to get your hands literally dirty i mean you got a glove up you know put your gloves on and then get your hands dirty you're a part of it and that's that's a huge i think part of what it means to be a writer today especially you know in this time of ongoing crisis you can't we can't afford to have our artists just pretend that we're on the sidelines and not participate you know this is a world that we all have a stake in and we have to be active
0: nonetheless it's got to be pretty harrowing
1: less so than you would think of course it sucks to be around <laughs> people dying but not when you're a part of trying to heal them it's it's hard to explain and it's something that I learned somewhere in the middle there of the decade that I was being a paramedic is that the the healing that happens with us, the cleansing of of all that trauma that you're around happens in the act of taking part in trying to heal it. And I think that's a lesson that we can take with us throughout all of life, right? When you sit and watch TV all day and all you see is the news and Trump and um, you know more police shootings and how bad things are and more wars and everything else, it can be very easy to just get depressed and get destroyed by it. But when you start to take part on some level, and that might mean marching down the street, that might mean organizing, it might mean sending out you know a social media message or a letter to a friend or something that is you taking an action your relationship to the world around you is transformed and regardless of whether or not you win or lose quote unquote, you know, it's not really about victory when we're taking a patient in who's dying or already dead, we do our best to bring them back. And then we give it to God, to the doctors, to the ER, and we walk away. And in the process of, of putting ourselves fully into healing that person, we also cleanse ourselves of the trauma of being around someone who's dying and ultimately, too, you can't, as a paramedic, carry every patient with you. You can't bring the last patient to the next patient, because then you'll fail that patient, because you'll be thinking about what happened to the last patient. Also true in life, you have to keep moving, not in a cold way. And I think people misunderstand that a lot. People will see paramedics, you know, firefighters, policemen joking about some of the terrible things that we've seen and been a part of. And that humor, It isn't the sign of a heart that's been closed down so much as a human that's fully involved and active in the world around them and making their way through it.
0: Fascinating. Now, in addition to being an award-winning novelist, you also write music. Yes. And you play in a soul jazz band. So how do your music and your novels complement one another?
1: Usually some character just loves music on some level, so it's my chance to get music into the stories. Music is... In everything we do, it's everywhere. You know, if we close our eyes, we can hear it somewhere, Um, whether it's the clicks and clacks of the city or an actual passing car with the radio blasting or what have you. There's just music all around us. And for me, it's really a fundamental part of life, whether it's me humming or me actually playing something, you know, on an instrument. It's just always there. And I feel like I've brought a lot of that to my prose writing, too. I love prose that has a musicality to it. And I've learned a lot from music about silence, about rhythm, about flow, about these concepts that they don't always teach us in writing class. You know, or they'll sort of skim it and be like, "Oh yeah, flow is important." What does that mean? And it's hard because there's what does it mean? You know, I, as a writing <laughs> teacher, I certainly can't teach how to have a kid, you know, have flow. A student learn to flow with their writing, but it's something that I can say, it's important and it matters and here's where it's happened on the page and you can see it working and so see how you can figure that out for your own voice. So, and I'll find it creep up on me. I'll be writing and I'll be like, oh, this is, um, you know, this has a musical quality to it. How can I enhance that? Uh, Ultimately, I'll, I'll listen to a beautiful piece of music and sometimes I'll think like, man, can I do that with writing? And no, the answer is no, you can't do that with writing. But if you try, you'll find something totally new that you wouldn't have gotten to before. It won't be equivalent to that piece of music, but it'll be, it'll take you in another direction entirely.
0: As you know, we're all having a conversation about representation in children's publishing It's clearly something very important to you. Could you share some of your thoughts about what it takes to bring once marginalized writers into mainstream publishing?
1: Uh, Yeah, I think we're seeing it happen in a certain level, and I think it needs to be, we need to be really intentional about keeping that momentum up. One of the things I really love that's happened is that, you know, this all started, this wave of the movement really started as a hashtag. We need diverse books. And mainly it was women of color writers who were getting up on Twitter and just saying, look, enough, we've had it, we're not going to take it anymore, and really putting their foot down. And I think it's always important to call out that particular part of the history because it's very easy to erase it, even two years down the line, where it's just become a more common thing that we're talking about diversity, and you know, now it's cool. Um, at the time, they were really risking I should say we. I was a part of it, too. It was mostly uh, women of color leading the charge, which is really important. It was a risky thing. It still is in a lot of ways, in ways that I think people don't fully recognize. But it's writers who have the most on the line. And it's also writers who are putting all that they have on the line over and over again and and standing up and saying, this isn't okay. What's exciting and what needs to happen more of is that the publishing industry, besides just the writers, really needs to get behind it. And you're seeing it. You know, you see it with Scholastic. You see it with other places. We need to see it more and more consistently. And I think it's really important to have a conversation about bravery. What does that really mean to stand up in, in the age of Black Lives Matter, in the age of all the things that are happening, to really do something brave in this world to make it a more equal place than the one that we started with. So certainly we need diverse books as a part of that. And what I love is that they turned it into something bigger than just this momentary hashtag and made an organization and kept up the work. And that's a lot of why it's still a conversation because it could have very easily. And I think the gravity is always towards not talking about it anymore. And I've heard people, you know, publishing people be like, well, we already talked about that. That was last year. What's next? You know, all these as if that kind of goes away or we go away or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But I, I do know that after an entire couple centuries, really, of literature, American literature, <laughs> we're finally having this conversation in a way that's actually making a change. So it's not just going to go away because we're like, all right, we're tired of talking about it. Well, We're not going to be tired of talking about f- the fact that we exist <laughs> and the fact that we should be in books. Right. So the momentum has to continue.
0: You're not a trend.
1: No, indeed not. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay. When was the first time you saw yourself represented in literature, and what did it mean to you?
1: Mm. There were probably smaller ones, but it was really – When I read, you know, I think The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde was really a a revelation to read. And that was obviously later. So I'm sure there were other moments, you know, I could probably find some in my childhood. Mm -hmm. But at that point, you know, I was just really thinking about it already in a very concrete and analytical way. And so to read this, you know, nerdy Latino character with so many references just from... Lord of the Rings stuff to Star Wars to Orisha, you know, Caribbean spirituality and all this stuff, like, what? <laughs> how is this possible? And the voice, just so much about that novel, it really is just perfect. And I loved it. And then, you know, so I, that led me to just read more widely and realize that this was, you know, we were out there in different ways in literature and sci-fi and fantasy, um, just across the board. And it, it was a really revelatory moment for sure.
0: I love that. Yeah. I think that Juno Diaz is not only brave in his work, but right. in his life and the stands that he's taking Absolutely. today are just remarkable. Mm-hmm. He's really, um, he persists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Why do you think it's so important that children see themselves in the books they read?
1: Um, mostly because a lot of us weren't able to, you know, they're, because of that long history of erasure and of demonization and of turning black and brown kids into either clowns or doomed sidekicks or bad guys. You know, that's all that we had. So we would have to practice this radical act of translation where we would either take the white character and pretend that, that we that we, we were like them or they were like us on some level, which is a very damaging process for a child to go through. I think one that we haven't fully grasped in a way. Because you can't really study it. You, know, you can't really put a, a number or an equation behind like what that does to a psyche of someone young and, and, and growing up when they don't get to see themselves as a protagonist. You know. When I look at it, to me it's a, it's a huge human rights violation to deny an entire generation of young people of color, generation after generation of young people of color, the right to see ourselves as protagonists in stories. How else are we to conceptualize ourselves as protagonists in our own lives if not through the stories that we're told? So I'm so happy that it's happening now But we also have to reconcile with what the past has done and what it's meant and who's been a part of it.
0: How do you hope that your work will fill a gap for young readers who don't always see themselves in literature? And and how do you want to inspire them?
1: Exactly that. I want people to read books like Shadow Shaper and see that not only like can we be heroes, but that there are so many different faces of who we are, that we are complex humans. you know it's not just about having like these perfect, good guys who are flawless, you know it doesn't really do us any good, just like when we talk about representation of women or non men at all, what that means to just have these kind of oh well they there we always used to make them seem helpless, so now we're going to have them really, really hardcore and like be able to beat up everybody and do whatever they want. And like you're still not creating a human character, right? So it's about do we have a multiplicity of of who we are on the page, not just Mm -hmm. the one to rule them all and not just the one who's a bad guy, but all the different ones in between and all the different layers of who each of those people are. That's what I hope people walk away with.
0: I have to ask you this. I know you're a big fan of the late sci-fi writer Octavia Butler. Of course. How has she influenced you and your work?
1: What's amazing uh, that Octavia Butler really did is kind of give, I feel like, the world permission to talk about these deep issues of power and still tell a great story. And I think no one, first of all, no one has done it or did it like her. There's other writers that are amazing that write about power and they do it in a science fiction context. I feel like Octavia really taught us how to do that in a new way. And up to that point, and even after her, because people don't pay attention, there's this ongoing narrative that if you bring any kind of political analysis or thought process about the world around us into your fiction, then it's immediately didactic in your preaching. When the reality is that fantasy has always politicked with all kinds of ideas about the world. I mean, that's part of why it's great, but also part of what's so damaging about it, because usually those ideas are very imperialist and white supremacist notions, whether it's, you know, the The evil brown masses trying to storm the kingdom and and destroy whiteness you know or the uh the different far reaches of space and the way that the noble colonizer can go and save the poor aliens all these all these kind of tragic metaphors that are posed as heroic that's an ongoing conversation in sci-fi and fantasy that we've always been having. It's just that it's a very normalized white supremacist idea. So when Octavia Butler came along and had a much more complex conversation about power that wasn't centered on whiteness, that was about a complexity of humanity and centered people of color, that's a very radical notion. And she's, I would say she's like the Foucault of sci-fi because she gets <laughs> so deep into these different elements, interrelational power, cultural power, institutional power and never in a dull way and never in a way that feels like she's trying to teach you something but always in a way where she's making you probe deeper and find out what this is really about and always in in the realm of telling a great story
0: thank you so much for joining us daniel it was a pleasure thank you for having me my great thanks again to daniel jose older for talking with us today and thank you for joining us To learn more about Daniel's work, check the show notes or go to scholasticreads.com. Help us make our podcast even more valuable to you. Please take our survey at scholasticreads.com. Special thanks to producer Emily Morrow, sound engineers Daniel Jordan and Chris Johnson, and music composer Lucas Elliot Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads with you next time.